0: Gateway, uh, wherever you may find yourself today, whether uh, you're in your living room or sitting around a kitchen table, maybe you're just in your apartment, I just want to invite you to remember that worship is itself our whole lives. It's something that isn't just isolated to a Sunday morning or uh, to a time in front of a screen, but rather it it touches each and every facet of our life. And so I just wanted to take time, especially in this season, as many of us are being stressed and pressed financially, to remind us that there is an opportunity to be a generous people. And so I have two things. One, I just wanna say if you have a need, we want to, help meet that need if we're able. So know that you can connect with us. Um, if you go to thegatewaychurch.com, the banner that comes on the top will give you a link to our benevolence applicant. Like you can just fill that out and we will follow up with you. But I also just wanna read uh, this giving liturgy over us as an act of worship and really as a counterformational process to index our hearts towards generosity. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Gateway, may we in this season be a community, be a people who are marked by the ways and will of Jesus. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. See, these are the first words of Jesus recorded in the first recorded gospel account, specifically the gospel according to Mark. And these words, they not only marked out the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in a little northern region of Israel called the Galilee, but these words, they account for the full breadth of Jesus' ministry. And yet today we who claim to follow Jesus, we've done a fine job at domesticating these wild words of Jesus. We've corralled these words, we've tucked them neatly into our Bible studies, we've abstracted them into these obscure religious notions that only the brightest theological minds can access. And if we're honest, I think that these words, they can feel like they have little to no bearing on our lives or on our own personal story. And yet, these words are the words that are at the core of our teaching today. And so in an effort just to break loose uh, the, the, the shackles of these um, rigid abstractions, I'm just going to ask for your trust these next few moments, just to go with me on this little mental exercise. And so uh, let's just imagine ourselves back into the first century with Jesus, back into the scenes and settings of Jesus's life. Let's imagine ourselves back there to wake up our imaginations to the teachings of Jesus. If it helps you in these next few moments to close your eyes, uh, you have my permission. I obviously can't see you <laughs> while you're doing it, but I would say if, if you're watching small humans, I would advise against it. They are wily. So picture yourself. You're a fisherman. You're a fisherwoman you're working in the family business in this region of the Galilee all of your time and energy and effort is focused around this this small region in the Sea of Galilee perhaps you're a stonemason or a merchant of some sort and then as you're out In the marketplace, you hear the hustle and bustle about this no-name rabbi who's come into town with these words piercing the air wherever he goes. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And now because in this little mental exercise, you yourself are a devout Jewish person You're attentive to the the teachings and traditions of your ancestors. When these words come to you, they get your attention. They arrest your heart. They say something to you. And it quickly becomes clear to you that this rabbi's words are more than just words, as other rabbis would go around teaching in this region. No, these words come with power. They come with authority. Even the unclean spirits obey the words of this Jesus of Nazareth, and now this kingdom of God speak. It's it's begun to spill out of the synagogue. It's it's moving out beyond all the defined religious spaces. And next, you hear that this this rabbi he's teaching by the shore of the sea, and then you, you notice that crowds begin to flock to this Jesus, and. The, the crowds are there bursting the seams of these small houses. You, you hear rumors of his teachings with authority in other towns. You hear rumors of the, of the healings and the mighty works that he's performing. And now you, you yourself, you just have to hear this Jesus of Nazareth because you've begun to notice that his words, they don't return to him empty even the lepers, the outcasts, they are able to draw near to this Jesus. They're they're met with dignity, not disdain. They're met with honor. They're restored back to their family, back to community life in Jesus's name. And so you set out. You go to Capernaum, Jesus's home base, and you see a crowd swarming a house. They're clamoring around it. And by this point, you you know this is the place. You know this is where Jesus is. And so you, you push in to the room. And the, the air is just, it's thick with anticipation. There's different dialects, the, the smells, they, they stretch your senses. People are pushing against your back. They're, they're, they're leaning on your sides. Everyone is trying to draw near to Jesus. Everyone is straining their ears to hear his words. And yet you, through all of this, you're clinging to those first words, those words that didn't just pierce the air of your hometown, they, they pierced your heart, they stirred something up in it. Maybe this is the time of the Lord's visitation. Maybe this Jesus is the one the prophets of old spoke about, the one through whom God would finally liberate his people. You see, this scene, this scene and many like it, are for Mark the stage upon which the drama of Jesus finds fresh expression. See, these these scenes, they're not isolated to theological discourse or conversations or just topics like ethics. These are words of hope that Jesus brings. These are words to live into, to live out of. And as we'll see today, this kingdom of God speak, you could call it, it doesn't always evoke hope. Sometimes it evokes hostility. And let me just show you here. So go ahead and flip or tap your way on over uh, to Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So at this point in Mark, Jesus is back at his home base. Um, He's been around teaching. He's been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been casting out demons, teaching with authority, and now he's back at home. This is a setting that I think in this season we can all relate to. And yet, Uh, his popularity and his setting is a little different because his popularity has begun to reach new heights. Notice how the crowds, they're they're pressing in to the point where he and his closest followers, they aren't even able to sit down and enjoy a meal. And now Mark doesn't give us all the details here, but apparently Jesus' family, they're not that interested in Jesus' new notoriety. It, it, and in fact, it, um, it does something in their heart. It doesn't quite stir up hope, but rather the opposite. And we see as much in verse 21, where we see that they say this of Jesus they say, He is out of his mind. That's his family speaking. And in Mark's account, this is the first time that we hear of Jesus' family, so, quite the introduction Mark makes. This, reason, this is the reason that they've actually set out to find Jesus. Notice Mark says that they've set out to seize him because he is out of his mind. It's as if Jesus' family fears like any reprisal, any backlash that might come from his divisive words. See, only a few scenes prior to this, if you can think back to the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus is in this uh, public encounter. The, the tension is rising with the religious leaders of the time. And, and on the Sabbath day, Jesus goes to the synagogue and there's a man with a, a withered hand. And Jesus calls this man to the center of the room and engages in a dialogue about the nature of the Sabbath. Is it a place for rest and healing or, or not? And as a way to prove that Sabbath is a place for rest and healing and restoration, Jesus has the man with a withered hand stretch his hand out, and he is restored. And this this moment is a moment that Jesus intentionally escalates the tension with the religious leaders. And so it's with this backdrop in mind that we meet Jesus' family, that we hear their words about Jesus, and without any more details, Mark as he often does, escalates the discomfort. And then we read this in verse 22, check this out. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demon he casts out the demons. It's like the fear that the family had that there would be some sort of backlash is realized in Mark's account. Now it's not just that Jesus is out of his mind, but rather that his mind is out of control. He's possessed. And just just as an aside here, as we continue to make our way into these passages, have you ever noticed that when frustration or, or tension flares up, like when we feel out of control in a situation, just how easy it is to vilify someone? Have you ever noticed that? how easy it is just to lash out as, as a means to like protect ourselves or hold our proverbial ground. It's like when we assign to that person or that thing or that scenario a, a category, a title, maybe even a slur, then we hold the power. We're able to like guard up against whatever that thing over there may be. It distances it, it others it. If, if you need a concrete example, just think about the political commentary this past week as it relates to COVID-19. I mean, should, should citizens liberate themselves or should we stay home and stay safe? It's, it's amazing what you can do when you objectify a person. When, when you take a person made in the image of God and you distance them from that image, it's amazing what you can do to that thing. Mark is drawing our attention to this because this is not a new tactic. Like this is not something that came about since uh, the 24-hour news cycle. No, this is time-tested. Jesus's family did it, and his opponents came all the way up from Jerusalem to do it as well. They say this that he is aligned with the prince of demons. Like if you, if you want to like up the ante on uh, trash talk this is how you do it and yet this is nothing new and isn't it interesting how jesus at the very same moment he can draw out hope in some and hostility in others and none of this is accidental in the gospel according to mark see every word every story it draws into greater focus the main story That the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that there is a call to turn with trust toward the God of the cosmos. This is the focal point of Jesus' life and ministry. And the stakes must be pretty high because either Jesus really is bringing the kingdom of God or he's mad and possessed. Accusations like this don't just come out of nowhere. And, and of course, Jesus could snap back with some shuddering remark that shuts down the scribes. But I love, I love what Jesus did. And instead, he invites them in to his world. He and then he intentionally speaks in pictures, these little things called parables. Just look look down to verse 23, and let's just keep tracking with Mark here. And he, this is Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, he may plunder his house. See, the logic of Jesus's rebuttal here, these little word pictures, it it leads to this conclusion. That even if Jesus is in league with Beelzebul, like the prince of demons, Satan himself, Satan's still coming to an end because he himself is tearing himself down. That house cannot stand. But this is far from the case. Jesus is opposed to the Satan. He is opposed to the accuser. And he says it this way. He says that he has bound him and is now plundering his goods. Think back into the gospel according to Mark. Just from where we are back to the beginning. Time and time again, Jesus manifests the authority of God's rule and reign by casting out demons every moment that that takes place, he is literally taking back God's goods from the strong man who is now bound in Jesus' name. First, we see it when Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness and Jesus emerges from that testing to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's as though everything that the Satan could throw at Jesus was not enough for Jesus to deny his position before the Father. See, Jesus at that point had just received the divine affirmation, the, the words of belovedness spoken over him. And it is in that vein then that Jesus moves forward to push back, to take back the plundered goods of God. This, this is where we meet this little interaction it's in this moment that we see that all of humanity that has been held captive to the oppressive grip of sin and death is being, it's being pushed back and loosed in Jesus' name. Jesus is literally liberating the captive. He is displaying the rule of God. And it is this framework, it's this framework that we need to have in mind as we read on because it helps us understand what Jesus says next in verse 28. Go there with me now. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See, this is not hard, but it is hard. What I mean is that these words are quite simple, but they are hard words of Jesus. And I don't want to discount that for any moment, but it's as though Jesus is saying whatever the case may be with the other slanderous speech, there is one type of speech which is unforgivable, that which is against the Holy Spirit. And I love the way how New Testament scholar, a brilliant, brilliant thinker, I commend really anything he writes to you, Tom Wright, he says it this way. He says, it isn't that God gets especially angry with one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. See, the words of Jesus here that They're not about having us or his contemporaries like parse our every word to see. Okay, was that that the word that would be unpardonable? No, see, this is a warning against those who adopt a position of deliberate and outright rejection of Jesus. It's not an attempt to frighten those with a tender conscience or spirit. These verses are really like... um, That one email, you wake up in the morning and your inbox has 10, 11, 12 emails, and then there's that one email. That one email that stands out because it's the only inflammatory email amongst all of them. And you can't remember the other 9, 10, 11 emails that are neutral to good, but this one email that it just gets under your skin. That's what this verse does to us. It, it, it like steals our attention away. It, it eclipses all of the other realities that are laid bare in Jesus' words here. And I want us to pay attention to this. Notice verse 28. What does it say? It says, all sins will be forgiven. And yes, what comes after that is Jesus addressing this posture towards sinning against the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but but all sins will be forgiven? If you're asking in your heart right now, like, have I committed the sin? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? Let, Let me just assure you, if that question is on your mind or in your heart, you have not committed that sin. Because that question, it's like a signal to your conscience of a soft and tender heart toward God. You actually care about his will, and more so you care about doing his will. That's what is at the core here. See, this this sin against the Holy Spirit, it's this inflection point with the religious leaders. Notice what it says in verse, in verse 30, it says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus, time and time again, has demonstrated the power of God among them, and yet they have come up in opposition, not just saying that he's mad, like Jesus' family, they're saying that he himself is working with the accuser, the enemy of our souls. That is an outright rejection, that, is this opposition that Jesus talks about. But, but Mark doesn't stop here. We, we might think that the story ends right here, but remember this little collection of scenes that the drama of Jesus is, is, is playing out in, it starts with Jesus' family, and Mark is going to end it with Jesus' family. So look again at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, and pay attention to that, standing outside they sent to him and called to him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and brothers are outside seeking you there it is again they're outside and he this is jesus answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking at those who sat around him he said here here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of God, he, she is my mother, brother, sister. See, this collection of passages, it's, this, it's painting a picture for us for what the kingdom of God is really like for what it looks like for the kingdom of God to draw near in Jesus. It's a new family centered on the way and will of Jesus in the world. And Mark never tells us what Jesus' like what Jesus's family made of his strange words. We're merely left to assume from the fact that they will not appear in the story again that their attempt to lay hands on him, to seize him, that it had to be abandoned and that they returned back to Nazareth. And the implication here is is not so much that family relationships are themselves unimportant, but it's rather that there's a higher priority in the call of Jesus. That that is that to be with Jesus may mean that, that there's precedence to align our lives with Jesus, than to align our lives with our family. And this is an area, even in my own life, that I, I like, have a difficult time reconciling. What does it mean to move towards my family with grace? What does it mean to lean into those spaces of, of bitterness or, or distrust? What does it mean to then love them in the name of Jesus? What, I mean, it's, th- there's not a simple answer to these complex questions. But perhaps there's something that has just come to your mind that the spirit is actually drawing in you. It's a it's a tension point where Jesus by the power of his spirit is like calling you to be extraordinarily generous with your time or your finances in this season. And your family thinks that you are a fool for doing so. That is a moment where you are aligned with Jesus. And according to Mark and and really according to Jesus the price is worth paying, because doing the will of God, that is where the family of Jesus resides. Did you notice that? That the family of God resides in the will of God? See, this this whole collection of stories, they're painting for us a picture of a God who is gathering to himself a new family, not a family defined by like biological bloodlines, but a family wherein like the Apostle Paul will say that we are adopted in, or he'll say that we are grafted in, like we are grafted in, brought in together into the purposes of God. There's a new family centered around the way and will of Jesus in the world. It's a family who's who's turned towards Jesus in trust, See, there's this uh, perennial question that comes in light of this passage, and yes, sometimes it's the Holy Spirit and sin, unpardonable thing, but what I think is more often asked is, well, what is the will of God? And at this point, we have all, like, we have Mark's words. We have Jesus' words in Mark, and it are, it's those first words. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the good news. This is the will of God, is to turn to Him in trust. See, in this moment, this is actually the simplicity of this passage. It's it's the simple question of where do our allegiances lie? And so, let me just ask you: Is there a threshold in your life for following Jesus? Is there a place where you will say, "I I will go this far," but then after that, I, I don't really know? See. I wish there was some, like, moment of dramatic pastoral exhortation, but that's not what this passage invites. This is a sobering invitation invitation for us to ask, where are we? See, Mark is inviting us to plot ourselves in the story. See, that scene of where Jesus, at the very end, looks around It's literally Jesus in the home, looking around, his family outside. And yet those who are near to him, those who in the scene before are up on a mountain with Jesus, those whom he desired, they are called his family. So Mark is inviting us to plot ourselves in this scene. That's why we started our time imagining ourselves into the story, because this is the invitation. We get to see ourselves into the words and way of Jesus. So so where are you? Was there and will there ever be a better time than now to ask that question? Think of the margin that you have. And then think of all of the distractions that are trying to account for that time. What would it look like if we just said no to three distractions this week? Just this week, and we gave that time to be with Jesus, to continue to cultivate intimacy, just to say, I want to be near you. But last week, we, we looked at the call of Jesus and just that first section of to be with him, where he called those whom he desired to be with him, to proclaim the kingdom, to have authority to cast out demons, and we just turned our attention and ask what would it mean for us to be with him? What's standing in the way? Well, right now, we actually get the privilege from Mark to ask that question of ourselves again. Because right here, this call to a new family is for us a call to new life with Jesus. I mean, just look back to verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he, she is my brother, my sister, my mother. See, Jesus has just blown wide open the doors to life in his family. I love, I love how Tim Gombas, who's a New Testament scholar, how he kind of draws our attention to this. He, he goes on to say this about what this new family, this new humanity looks like. He says, the new humanity, this is a, a humanity, a, a people who are enacting the will of God, They conduct relationships of love and honor, relationships that are radically different, where love and justice flow along social networks, not manipulation or exploitation. And when a community conducts itself with justice, with God's justice in mind, then that community performs the faithful presence of God. These communities are bearers of hope because they embody God's restoration in the world and they anticipate for everyone around them the day when God will make all things new. See, this new family that Jesus is carving out, this is us. This is us, we who have given our allegiance to him. We who've turned from our former ways in trust to God. We are caught up with Jesus. We are seated with him in the heavens. We are filled with his spirit now. And so the question we have from Mark is, is that true? Because even Jesus' own family stands outside. I, I, I don't want to put the thoughts of Uh, this question in, like, the answer of this into your mind. Rather, plot this. Take the time to seriously consider where you may be in this. And so I'm just going to do this thing. Uh, This might feel odd for a sermon, but I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. And I invite you in this moment just to allow my words to give expression um, to plotting yourself in this moment. And so wherever you may be, whether you're on a Zoom call and you're living in your room, you're with your family, uh, you're by yourself, I just invite you to uh, set your hands in front of you as a posture of receiving God's presence among you. Let us pray. Jesus, we come to you and we receive these words, hard though they may be. And we're grateful that you actually invite us in that you have blown wide open the doors to who has access to your family. You've restored the outcast, you've bound up the broken in God. I'm just asking that you see me, that you see us in our brokenness. Jesus, would you help us to find restoration and hope in you in this season? And as we are met with your restoring presence, would we be that in Des Moines as it is in heaven? Jesus, we pray this in your strong name, amen.